will be purposeless until he's performing what his creator made him to do. And this is where the, the doctrine of vocation arises. Second creation mandate we looked at last week was the exact opposite of that. It was Sabbath. It's interesting in Genesis 2, verse 2 and 3, you see the mandate for Sabbath, not inactivity, but cessation from one kind of activity, self-focused. That's necessarily what Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday are, self-focused. But Sabbath is transition to a different kind of activity, a God-focused activity. And then today we're going to look at two, two final creation mandates, the issue of marriage and multiplication. You will notice I didn't say marriage and addition, but marriage and multiplication. And what I hope you do is have your Bible open to Genesis 1 and 2. You will certainly need it. And I want you to think with me today about this profound issue of marriage. And the principle that we see is that aloneness is not good. This is an ethical statement given before the fall. It's interesting that this is the only thing that is said before the fall that's not good. Think about the ethical import of that. Look at Genesis 2.18. This is before the fall. Perfect world. No death. No sin. But the Lord God states something is not good. Look at Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable for him. This is not the conclusion of Adam, that singleness is not good. This is the declaration of a holy God. God didn't consult Adam. In fact, Adam may not have had any idea that it wasn't good for him to be alone. He wouldn't have known anything else. Remember, he was in Eden with every bountiful provision his heart could desire, including a, a whole zoo of pets that adored him as their ruler. God was not responding on the part of a complaint by Adam. And when the Lord says in Genesis 2.18, not good. This is the Lord's sovereign, holy, unilateral assessment. Adam had no one to love being in the image of God. He was full of love and affection and had no suitable object for it. He had no one to talk to in reciprocal conversation. We were made for communication. When Adam spoke to the animals, they never answered. Adam had no one to touch and embrace. And so isn't God's statement, look at Genesis 2.18, isn't this a rebuke to the whole monastic system and the Roman Catholic doctrine of priestly celibacy? When Rome says, well, it's a, it's a higher order of holiness for men to be alone. God says, God says, no, even before a fall, it is not good for men to be celibate and alone. Marriage is what's appropriate. So the other thing you should see in Genesis 2, look very deeply at this is the God-implanted need for companionship cannot be met by anyone or anything other than a spouse. Now think clearly about that. We're thinking about creation mandates. And we've, we've already looked at labor, looked at Sabbath, but today we're specifically talking about marriage and then briefly about multiplication. Listen to that assessment again. The God-implanted need for companionship cannot be met by anything or anyone other than a spouse. Even after the creation of all the animals and Adam surveying them, we are told in verse 20 of chapter 2 
there was still not a helper suitable for him. Now, this is in a perfect world. The text is stressing that animals, and, and of course, you know that when I'm talking to you, I am the biggest dog idiot in the world. But I, I get it, that even your pets cannot function like a spouse. A dog or a cat is not man's best friend, or even a suitable companion. Otherwise, God, after creating animals, would have said to Adam, there you go, that's what you need. But as Adam gives names to all the animals, look at verse 20, and we see him in his naming function of dominion here. As he gives names to all the animals, he realizes none look or act like him. He sees that they are with others of their kind. They all have mates, but he has none. It's interesting, our Westminster Confession in chapter 24 says, marriage (coughs) is for the mutual help of husband and wife, the mutual help. (coughs) And what is meant there is the committed companionship of one another. Now think about this idea that our confession uses when it's describing Genesis 2, that marriage is for the mutual help of husband and wife. Think about this issue of helpers. How often do we say, well, a man can take care of himself. He doesn't need any help. You know, we we value the strong, silent type who can handle any situation, always controlled. But it's the woman who needs help. She needs protection and decision-making, and she needs help with working on her car and managing her checkbook and all that. But make no mistake, when God instituted marriage, it was the man who was in need of a helper. Look carefully at the text. And so if we are to realize and understand the fundamental, basic uh, uh rationale for marriage. In our homes, conversations like this ought to be happening. A wife on a regular basis should be asking her husband, how can I help you today? That was her original creation intent, to be a helper. Now, the term helper, for any of you who think of, you know, a helper, that's somebody who's menial and they're a gopher. No, that's not at all what's meant by the term a helper. Because God is usually called the helper of his people all through the Psalms. In Psalm 54, for example. And when we sing, O God, our help in ages past, we're singing the same term that's used of the woman here. So how does the fall corrupt this principle? Well, men view their wives as competitor, not their helper. What is the essence of marriage? It's companionship and help. It's interesting how often scripture in Scripture, marriage is described fundamentally as a companionship. So, for example, in Proverbs 2, we read of the immoral woman. She, she forsakes her companion. And so, for the help of man, look back at Genesis chapter 2, for the help of man in verses 21 through 23, when God sees Adam that it's not good for him to be alone, for Adam's help, God creates the woman. Now, notice something profound about the creation of the woman. Look carefully at your Bible, at Genesis 2, verses 21 through 23, and notice something unique about Eve. She is not created ex nihilo like Adam is. She is created out of Adam's flesh and bone and DNA. She's perfect and sinless, no imperfections in body or soul. And you have this 
beautiful. It's a stunning picture in Genesis 2 of God like the father of the bride. Look at verse 22. Brings her to Adam. The woman is God's gift to the man. So husbands, if you've ever said in a moment of anger heat to your wife, who do you think you are? God's gift? Ladies, you can say, yeah, I am. That's what I am. God's gift to the man. And so the fact, by the way, that Eve is formed after Adam is developed. This principle is developed by Paul deeply in 1 Timothy 2. And he says the order of creation, the man is created first, is highly significant. And we should understand it to be so. Now, let me tell you what's immediately ruled out by God's word. And, and I want you to see these six things as really part of a whole. Because when you look at the creation mandate of marriage, Scripture sets forth six things that are all an attack on marriage. And so it, it rules them all out, all six of these things. And I hope that when you see these, you'll say, oh, I get it. These are all of a piece. And until now, I thought, ooh, yuck, but hey, that's not so bad. Six attacks on marriage. And our culture is doing all of them. We talk often about how spiritual warfare, the believer, is to, is to fight a three-front war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Always, always battling against those. Well, in marriage, you need to recognize there are six attacks, and Scripture is very clear on all of them. Let me tell you what they are on your marriage. The first is, and this will be on the yuck factor end of the spectrum, incest. But notice what the original creation mandate says. Look at your Bible, Genesis 2:24, where the man is told to leave father and mother. In other words, he's not to, to have an incestuous relationship with a family member. What's interesting is how this gets expanded. So, for example, if you read Leviticus chapter 18, you have all of these prohibitions against incest. And then this is carried over into the New Testament when Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 and orders immediate excommunication in the, the toughest of church discipline on the person in the congregation who's engaged in an incestuous relationship, thus showing us that this creation mandate opposed of marriage is always opposed to incest. Now, this is what our confession of faith penned in the 1640s is referring to. Listen to what our confession says. Maybe you've never heard these words before. And it contains my vocabulary word for the day. You can try this out on your children at home. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity. Isn't that a great word? When was the last time you threw that word around? Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties so that those persons could live together lawfully as man and wife. If you grew up an Anglican, you know this because in the back of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, every one since 1563, is a chart that's called a table of kindred and affinity. And it lists who you can't marry. And it begins with you can't marry your dad or your mom, your brother, your sister, and it goes down and lists all the people that Leviticus 18 lists. And so by the, by the way... There is a natural curse built in upon this. Do you know what happens to families who intermarry? There's a high incidence of birth defects. And so that's God's curse upon incest. Second attack on marriage. And again, Scripture outlaws clearly all six of these 
And the reason why is because all of these are a corruption of God's good gift of marriage. The second is polygamy. Now we're moving further away from the yuck factor into the spectrum to now there are all kinds of TV shows glorifying this today. This is multiple one-flesh relationships. Look carefully at the math in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And so what we're being told is, is the two shall become one. The first example of polygamy was Lamech in Genesis 4, who was notorious for other wickedness. Now, this is, this is a profoundly contemporary issue. It's not just making a comeback in America today. I'd sent Ruben Shinani, our, our Nigerian student, had sent him an article a couple of weeks ago saying, hey, while you've been here back in Nigeria, polygamy is making a comeback among evangelicals. And it also has never left among Muslims. And it was, uh, has become an issue now, a contemporary issue in Western Europe and North America. The Netherlands, of course, set the pace by first approving homosexual marriage and then approving legal polygamy in 2005. And you're going to see more and more of this of, uh, isn't this really neat? Then uh, a third attack on marriage is homosexuality. This is, that this is unlawful is explicit in the original creation ordinance, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The model we see is one man, one woman. Again, prohibited in Leviticus 18 and punishable by death. And then once again, it's carried over into the New Testament. Paul, uh, Paul condemns it in the strongest terms in Romans chapter 1. And then again in 1 Corinthians 6. This morning, I hope you heard Pastor King as he was reading the, the word of pardon. He, he used the words in 1 Corinthians 6 that God clearly says that the homosexual, the sodomite, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. A fourth attack on marriage. And now I, I, I probably have to apologize to you because I'm going to talk about things that you probably don't want your junior high and senior high students hearing. Fourth attack on marriage is aberrant one flesh relationships. By that I mean bestiality, which is becoming more and more common. Almost every state in the country has written the laws against such off the books. By the way, it's, the, it's stated as such in Leviticus 18 and 20, always a capital crime in Scripture because it's such a corruption of God's beautiful institution. Fifth, and now you're going to say, really? After all that? Fifth attack on marriage, premarital sexuality, fornication. And this is condemned by the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 22 and by the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6 and Hebrews 13. And you think, I, I think it's kind of cute. You know, a guy and a girl in the back seat of a car. It's on the same grounds as the, other, the previous four that I just said. All of these are equally an attack and assault on one thing, God's holy creation ordinance of marriage. And then the sixth is adultery extramarital relationships and sexuality. This is what the seventh commandment is that you can see in Exodus chapter 20. Long before the giving of the moral law, we hear Joseph avoiding adultery on the grounds that it would be a great sin against God. Why all of these prohibitions, all of these safeguards and protections are for the sanctity of marriage. Now, let me remind you what the fundamentals of marriage are. Look carefully at your Bible at Genesis 2. Because we are told in Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25, 
what the four fundamentals of marriage are. Let me point out those four principles, and hopefully this will be a refresher course for you. If you're single and you're thinking, I, I want a marriage seems so mysterious. I wonder what marriage is really all about. It's all wrapped up in two verses. Look at them there in Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. The first is the principle of severance. Notice what we're told, that a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, I have had married couples who this was going to be such a problem with that I actually required them to have their parents stand up in the ceremony and take vows that they were sending this child away with their blessing because they had their claws so deeply into their kids. They didn't want to separate. But look at what we're told in verse 24. A man shall leave his father and mother. It's God's plan. Moms and dads, listen to me. It's God's plan for a married couple to separate from their parents and create their own home and life. To leave parents means you establish an adult relationship with both sets of parents. Parents still have to be honored according to the fifth commandment, but a son needs to leave, establish his own home, and lead it. And practically, it means now that a man or a woman must be concerned with their mates' ideas, opinions, and practices far more so than either set of parents. It means you try, stop trying to change your mate because your family doesn't like him or her the way they are. You left them, remember? And it means you must make the new husband, new wife, your top priority human relationship. This principle of severance is why historic Protestant wedding vows always begin with this promise. Forsaking all others. We've understood this as Protestants. And practical tips. By the way, moms, I speak especially to you. Your goal is to prepare your children to leave and separate, not to stay. If you're preparing your children to stay, you're doing it wrong. Your job is to prepare your children to leave. Don't cling to them in such a way that you create sinful loyalties. Second principle, look back at your Bible. Again, we is the principle of permanence. We see in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, to be joined to the Hebrew word here means to, to cleave. Technically, to be stuck together. So husbands, don't take that to mean you should look at your wife and say, well, I'm stuck with you. That's the wrong way to view that. So listen to me. Do we live in an unbiblical post-Christian culture? Look no further than this for proof. Now the majority of states in the United States don't even keep track of divorces anymore. Closer to home, the number of people marrying in South Carolina has dropped by 40% since 1990, while divorce rates have soared up. In fact, between 1920 and 1980, the divorce rate more than tripled nationwide. And still, somewhere between 45 and 46% of all USA marriages will end in divorce. You remember in the traditional Christian wedding, the, the vow, the covenant oath is made till death do us part. I've actually had a couple ask me years ago in our premarital counseling, Carl, could we change that vow about till death do us part? Could we change that to as long as we both shall be committed? Some have even suggested that we should have the option of renewing or not our marriage license every four years like we can with our driver's licenses. But according to Malachi 2 and Proverbs 21, marriage is an irrevocable covenant to which we're bound. Therefore, when you marry, 
You're promising you'll be faithful to your one flesh partner no matter what happens, even if your wife loses her beauty and appeal. I always laugh when I've had guys come into my office and say, Carl, she's just not as attractive as she used to be. And I always love quoting Pastor Dodds here, and I'll say, you looked in the mirror lately, pal? (laughs) And so, actually, Dan's technical quote is, you're no oil painting yourself. (laughs) So this means when you marry, you're promising, even if your wife is not as tidy as you'd like, even if she spends money foolishly, even if she's a really bad cook, even if she's lost her waistline, Remember the, the day a guy came in and he was complaining about his wife had put on some pounds. I'm looking at him thinking, you've not only lost your waistline, you've lost your hairline, bro. Uh, <clears throat> that means that you will be permanent even if uh, your husband is not as good a provider as your father was or your friend's husband was. A Christian marriage is one where both partners realistically expect conflict. They know they and their partner have fallen. And they plan on facing those problems and seeking God's help to resolve them in God's way. And they're committed to staying in the marriage no matter what. The practical tip is here, husbands, you should frequently verbally reaffirm your commitment to your wife in regular creative ways. Wives crave protection and security and they hate insecurity. And conversely, you should commit to, at the very beginning, not trotting out the big gun. I'm leaving which shatters permanence. Look back at your text. Again, in verse 24, third principle is the principle of unity. Notice what the Lord says. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Profound unity. God's stated plan and desire for each marriage is tight unity. Now think carefully with me and put away all foolish and sentimental notions here. There is no such thing as love at first sight. That happens in the movies, not in real life. It never happens to anyone in real life. It's not sentimental. There is is no such thing as instant soulmates. No one will be one flesh on their wedding day. It has to be strived for, worked for. It must be developed. It's certainly not innate. And this is probably the most widely believed of all the marriage myths. Marriage will result in instant unity and instant happiness. This is shown to be ridiculous when you do the math of marriage. One sinner plus another sinner equals two sinners. Double trouble under one roof. And then add in a couple little sinnerlings, and now the potential for explosion becomes exponential. Even well-adjusted, spiritually mature couples have to work through countless areas of disparity. He wants to go to the game. She wants to go to the beach. He favors his friends. She favors her families. And don't misunderstand, marriage can be and should be deeply satisfying. But if it is, it's because both partners have paid a high price to make it that way. When we talk about one flesh, think of a husband-wife this way. Before marriage, he and she. At marriage, he and she. After years of working at it, he and she. Being one flesh means working for unity in at least the following ways. It means laboring for unity of mind on roles and responsibilities. I know couples who have been married 40 and 45 years who still can't nail down the role of a husband and a wife. And they have no unity. 
That's, there, there has to be the work done on roles and responsibilities. That's why Pastor Anderson, Pastor Dodds, myself, I'm sure Pastor King, spend so much time in premarital counseling on this issue. What is the role and responsibility of a wife? What of a husband? And then unity of goals and finances, unity in the realm of sexuality, unity of shared philosophy. Again, I know parents who have never been able to get together on child training. And, of course, kids smell that from a mile off. If they can sense any disparity between mom and dad, they will gravitate towards the good cop and work that against the bad cop. So Cindy and I, we solved that. Our parenting philosophy was bad cop and bad cop is who we were. (laughs) And then if there's unity of biblical understanding, some of the saddest couples I know is where one is a Baptist and one's a Presbyterian. One's a Calvinist, one's an Arminian. And it's sad. It's very difficult to watch. God's intention is when two people get married, they should share everything, their bodies, their possessions, their funds. And so if you would have gotten married in the 1640s instead of the 1940s, the standard Puritan wedding vow was this. As the minister looked at the husband and wife, he would say, do you promise to only have one purse? And what that meant is we would say, do you promise to only have one checking account together where you share your funds? Uh, Unity means you you share your ideas, your abilities, your problems, your successes, your failures, your trials, your sufferings. A husband and a wife should be a team, a unit. And the one flesh principle should show itself in practical, tangible, demonstrable ways, or it's just a nice sentiment. One of the biggest tendencies that new husbands and wives must labor at is the tendency to compete and one-up instead of pulling together. And I have to tell you, young husbands and wives, you have to work on this early in your marriage. Because if you don't, your children will exploit your lack of unity, and they will drive that wedge like a truck going through. A fourth principle is the principle of intimacy. Look at verse 25 of Genesis 2. Again, this is God's creation ordinance. This is marriage from the beginning, before the fall. The principle of intimacy. Look at what we're told. They were both naked and were not ashamed. The nakedness of Adam and Eve is, by the way, not a recommendation of public nudity. This happened before there were other people around. Adam was the only person who saw Eve naked and vice versa. And furthermore, this happened before they sinned. But after they sinned, we read in Genesis 3 verse 7, their eyes were open and they knew they were naked and they made coverings. As soon as sin entered the picture, they began to cover up. The attempt to cover up was an evidence of their awareness of their sinfulness before holy God. So immediately and foolishly, they tried to hide their sin from an omnipresent, omniscient God. But this covering up symbolizes not only an attempt to hide from God, but an attempt to hide from each other. When sin entered the picture, their openness, their transparency, their oneness were destroyed. Striving for intimacy now in a fallen world means more than just being sexually intimate after marriage. It means taking off all the masks. Being transparent. I'm always amazed when I'll talk to a husband. Carl, I I can't talk to my wife. She wouldn't understand me. Well, if she can't understand you, who will? She's the only person in the world that you've taken vows to to be intimate and transparent with. God made your spouse to be your confidant. Now listen to me carefully, both ladies and men. God made your spouse to be your confidant. I can't tell you how many guys I've known who the path down the road to adultery, affairs, and divorce began with a man confiding in his secretary at work 
my wife can't understand me, so I, I, I just love you understand me so well. My friend, you are in a train wreck about to happen. God made your spouse to be your confidant, not your, your old friend from high school, your girlfriend, not your mom or your sister or your secretary, not the guys or the ladies in your small group, but your husband and your wife, period. Now, there's a big payoff here. When you're in a marriage that does take off all the masks and you accept one another as is, that best mirrors how Christ receives his bride because he receives us just as we are. By the way, where do you go to learn intimate speech? There's a book in the canon of scripture that we're going to make Taylor preach that's just for married couples. It's the Song of Solomon. 60% of the book is just conversations between a husband and a wife. It's glorious. Study it. Do you know what Solomon's favorite name for his wife is in the book of Song of Solomon? In Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 4, he calls his wife, my love. And in chapter 5, Mrs. Solomon's favorite name for him is my beloved. And the book of Song of Solomon teaches you marital communication. By the way, that's why pay no mind to that lady at Waffle House who has a tattoo right here that says, sworn to fun, loyal to none, and is bringing your hash brown scattered, smothered, and covered. When she calls you darling, just say, the name is Bob. (laughs) Because those kind of names are romantic names. Now, how do we apply this? Let me make some applications and a very quick statement about multiplication. Marriage is becoming rarer. Now, as for the last three years, More than 50% of American citizens over the age of 18 are not married. More than 50%. That's never happened before in our nation. More than 50%. Marriage is now the minority position, and it's growing more so by the year. This spells profound ill for our culture. Go back to Genesis 2. What's the original rationale for marriage? It's not good for man to be alone. Do you know what our culture says? Yeah, it is. It's great. A nation cannot demean marriage and flourish. God intended for marriage to be the norm. Another application, celibacy is not more holy than marriage. Roman Catholicism says it is. But marriage was established in a state of purity before the fall. Marriage is a picture, according to Paul in Ephesians 5. Marriage is that walking illustration of the union between Christ and his bride. To abuse marriage or view it lightly is to view the union between Jesus and his bride with contempt. Now, I would tell you that monogamous, by way of application, monogamous heterosexual marriage has always been the norm from the time of creation by everyone. That's the norm. Civil magistrates who give legal status to same-sex marriage are attacking God's creation ordinances and saying, we have a better standard for lawfulness than a holy God. Let me tell you, and I'll say this as carefully without any emotion, not trying to communicate any panic, God will not be mocked. Just as God destroyed Sodom, he will destroy nations who call evil good and call evil normal. Laws such as the Obergefell decision, which normalized and legalized homosexual marriage, are only the latest in a long string of attacks on marriage. Laws that made divorce quick and easy had the same effect. These are all frontal assaults on the institution of marriage. 
These things cannot coexist peacefully with the biblical view of marriage. They're antithetical. And then marriage, just like everything else in the garden, speaks of the generous provision of God. God provides a Sabbath for rest. He provides a garden for pleasure and work. And he provides a husband-wife for companionship. He's thought of everything. And that's the point you're to see in the garden. Well, again, another application is recognize that marriage is not the invention of the wedding channel or the dress industry or the catering industry. It was established by a holy God. The one who, in Isaiah 6, it's said of him, he's holy, holy, holy. Marriage isn't the least bit sentimental or gushy. It's holy. And it's to be guarded in the highest esteem. And so when you hear people speaking lightly of setting aside their one flesh status because of, oh, you know, incompatibility or petty offenses, remind them that marriage is the creation of a holy God and is to be permanent. Now, I want you to notice, uh, I want to speak of this, you'll notice I'm speaking of this after marriage. And that is the creation ordinance of multiplication. Look at Genesis 1.28. I want to speak of this very briefly where God says to them, that is Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Why is God so insistent that humans multiply? The answer is found when we consider that he created Adam and Eve in his image. He wants his image bearers to multiply because he wants more of his image spread throughout the world. Plus, the mandate to procreate and multiply is obviously essential for man to fulfill his dominion mandate, to subdue the earth and rule over the animals and all the rest of creation. For those who think somehow this, this mandate passed away after the fall, let me point out, it's immediately given to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9. Fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. Always in the context of a blessing. Now, I want to say this because <clears throat> if there's anything I... And, and sometimes I haven't succeeded in holding my tongue. I'm always deeply saddened, deeply disappointed when believers will say, oh, they're pregnant again. Don't they know what causes that? Oh, I'm going to have to buy a shower gift and take a meal. And, and people, I'll hear Christian people, and there have been times when I've gone to them and say, it's a blessing, it's a command, God told us to multiply, we should rejoice every time we see families multiplying. I want you to hear this biblically. God states to Abraham in the midst of blessing him in Genesis 17, he states these words of blessing. Listen to it. He intends to multiply you exceedingly. Abraham doesn't see that and say, oh, it's going to be so expensive. He sees that as a blessing. Or, for example, when Isaac blesses his son Jacob in Genesis 28, he does so by praying for God to make him fruitful and multiply his seed. On his deathbed, Jacob sees the birth of children and grandchildren as the fulfillment of God's promises, and he prays that they may grow into a multitude that fills the earth. So the application for this is we must not succumb to that worldly, wicked perspective that says children are a bother, a liability, and a hassle. Some believers even think that having children is a barrier to Christian service. But this command, to be fruitful and multiply is woven into the fabric of God's creation and tells us to think this way about children. For example, in Psalm 127, children are called the fruit of the womb are a blessing. 
In fact, the psalmist teaches us in that same psalm, in Psalm 127, the man whose home is full of children is blessed and happy. It may be loud, but it's blessed and happy. And so I want to make this application. Let's settle this down forever. Woodruff Road must be pro-child. Not just anti-abortion, but pro-child. Making every provision for them. I don't know if you notice, if you're new, you don't know this, but for the last five or six years, we have, we have been making our child protection policy stricter and stricter because we want to protect our children, because we're pro-child. And so we have all kinds of safeguards set in because we care deeply about our children. And we, by the way, let me talk to you. Are, are you signed up to keep the nursery? Oh, you're not? We need 20 Five more volunteers. 25. I want you to come up to me after this or tonight or send me an email and say, Carl, I actually was convicted that I haven't been pro-child and I haven't kept my vows. I promised to come alongside these parents and I want to help. I want to put my money where my mouth is. I want to be pro-child. I, I want to encourage multiplication instead of saying, not my kids, not going to do that. And as well, the multiplication principle in the home is a picture of what's to be taken over into the church. What we find is, is this multiplication principle, it's God's plan to multiply the number of the elect. Jesus says he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The psalmist in Isaiah write that the number of believers will fill the globe. This is what's intended by the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. We'll be looking at more of these in the coming weeks. The glorious expectation of the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 are this, that the kingdom will penetrate all the world, will grow to great stature, will dominate the field and the world. The righteous influence of the kingdom will totally penetrate the world system because the church will multiply. Through the years, we've had people, I, I never believed them because I think it's some other reason. I think it's because of Pastor Dan's preaching or something like that. But people will come to me and say, we're going to leave and we're going to, we, we want to grow to a smaller church. And I'll say, what? They'll say, you know, smaller church. And I'll say, you do realize that Woodruff Road is a small church. My mom's Sunday school class that she taught was larger than Woodruff Road is. They'll say, that's a relative term. I said, why do you want to go to a smaller church? Well, I'd, I'd really rather be in a church that's shrinking. I said, then you don't understand the fundamental principle of what God is up to. He's about multiplication and growth. This is a creation mandate. So whether it's the home and the family or the church, God is pro-growth. Well, I'm two minutes past, and the nursery workers, I don't want to, uh, uh, don't want to pretend upon their kindness anymore. Let me praise. I'll see you tonight at 6 p.m. Because tonight we get to celebrate multiplication again with another baptism tonight. So that's a glorious picture. And so when you take those vows tonight to come alongside and assist Lincoln and Mary, say, oh yeah, I need to go tell Carl I'll help keep the nursery. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these, these principles that are laid into your fabric of creation, labor, Sabbath, marriage, multiplication. Lord, we pray that we would love these principles, recognizing that all of these for our blessing and our benefit and our good. And you are shown by giving these to us to not be a stingy God, but a generous God. Bless us as we put these principles into action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you at 6 p.m. tonight.